Welcome into Locked On Knicks. Alex Wolf and Gavin Shaw here breaking down some news. Came out yesterday. It's nice to have news. The Knicks have finalized their front office hirings and, as a result, are now hopping into their coaching search. We get into some of the names. Plus, we're taking a little uh, time capsule trip back in time again, Gavin. Yeah, going to the uh, 1999-2000 season, obviously, not necessarily a team that was held in the same regard as the year before, but one that was pretty darn good, made it all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, in, in case you've been in a coma the last 20 years, that has not happened since, so a crucial team. We, we look at them uh, with a specific focus on Allen Houston, some fun notes on him and his career. Um, yeah, we, we jump in the time machine today. So all that and more coming up next on Locked on Knicks. You are Locked on Knicks. Your daily New York Knicks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This is all rebound, back up off the glass, it's good! LJ Perry brings the Knicks to the What he does is contagious. Oh, Robinson with a catch and slam. Across the lane, Knox fouled from behind, got it, and one to Trier. Trier drives down. Welcome into Locked On Knicks. Alex Wolf and Gavin Shaw here. As we said, breaking down some cool new news about the Knicks coaching search, which now apparently has begun in earnest with their front office figured out. But first, just a quick reminder, today's show is brought to you by Built Bar. Built Bars are so good. They're the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Nice and chewy and not at all chalky like those other bars that you might have had in your life. So check those out. Uh, go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON and you will get $10 off your first order. Again, that's promo code LOCKEDON at BuiltBar.com for $10 off your first order. We are talking about the head coaching search, which apparently has begun in earnest after the Knicks yesterday uh, put out a press release announcing their new front office hires officially. And seemingly like five minutes later, we had stories from uh, a, a co-authored story from Shams and Mike Borkanov of The Athletic about Knicks coaching candidates and a story from Ian Bagley of SNY also breaking down the coaching candidates. It looks like right now Tom Thibodeau is the top candidate, but there are uh, there are reports now saying that Kenny Atkinson is officially going to interview for the position and that Mike Miller is actually under consideration to potentially hold the job. So that's, I think, pretty solid news all around, Gavin. I don't know how you feel about this whole thing. Yeah, we were talking about it pre-show a little bit. Uh, I'm I'm not a fan of of Tom Thibodeau and his style really at all. I mean, I think he became a star and rose to success uh, partially because of a really good roster, partially because he was a brilliant defensive innovator. the The issue was um, he he sort of had his his one um, innovation basically in, in how he built his defense, specifically how he guarded pick and rolls. And then there, um, it led to the Bulls having like a historically good defense for four or five seasons and being way ahead of the curve. Other teams caught up, other coaches caught up, and he didn't really have a second move. Like I, I just, I really see him 
as kind of a one-trick pony of, of again, brilliant defensive innovator, but never really adapted off of that. Like his T-Wolves teams, and, and again, a, a lot of credit goes to the personnel in Chicago versus the personnel in Minnesota, but generally weren't very good defensively, and, and him versus Ryan Saunders didn't really seem to have a, a massive impact on that. And, and the fact that he just seems to run guys dry year after year after year. And is, I, I mean, I, I just, I don't think you can win long term as a coach with his level of intensity. I think it just wears guys down to a certain degree. And there just, there has to be a little more flexibility there. And I've, I've never really seen that from him. And granted, I mean, he's had a few years off. Maybe he's sort of regrouped, rethought things. But my, my instinct is that's just sort of who he is as a person. And uh, maybe I'd be proven wrong. Because, again, at one point he's brilliant. Like, it would be far and away not the worst hire the Knicks have made in recent memory. I mean, the guy's competent. He works his ass off. He's super, super smart. But just not anywhere close to my preferred candidate. And, and with the Knicks roster... I don't really see the fit for him. Um, I, I ultimately, I don't think it would end well. I think it would be a year or two, and, and then um, everyone would be worn out. The Knicks don't really win anything, and, and he'd be gone. Um, so I'm, I'm a little uh, perturbed that he's a candidate. I know you disagree with that, Alex. Um, Kenny Atkinson and Mike Miller, I'd be, uh, Atkinson's my guy. I, I'd, I'd like to have him. Again, don't think it's, it's, I wouldn't describe it as a home run hire, but I think he's a good coach, and I think he'd be, he'd be a solid fit. Uh, Miller, sort of a similar situation. Good coach, solid fit, not a home run hire, but I, I do prefer both of them to uh, Tom Thibodeau. Yeah, I uh, I guess I've kind of come around, and you know, I give a lot of credit to like um, to Schwinney and and other guys who I've talked to about Tibbs who have tried to look at it through like a a more you know like an impartial lens, and you know, I, I think I've come around on Tibbs. Um, I don't necessarily know, like, to use your terminology, I don't know that it's a home run to me either to hire Thibodeau. Um, I think he definitely has his flaws. And, you know, one of them is the minutes management, uh, for sure. You know, that's definitely something that I would want to see in place because I think that we've seen that um, R.J. Barrett and Kevin Knox, if they're completely, you know, just killed with minutes, tend to break down over the season. Um, Frank Nilakina has his injury issues that seem tethered to his, you know, minutes and whatever, where whenever he plays a long stretch of games where he's playing a high amount of minutes, that groin seems to flare up. Um, you know, there's, there's various issues with playing guys too many minutes that, but you know, he might actually, I think there's something to be said for his conditioning as well. I think he does a good job of conditioning his teams to actually be able to handle that. Um, you know, Jimmy Butler's still going strong after however many years. And, you know, maybe he's just a physical freak or maybe he's, you know, maybe he actually developed a, you know, a good uh, core set of physical traits, you know, over the years to deal with playing tons and tons of minutes and not having it affect him. But I guess there's, you know, the only way to find out is if, if he eventually becomes coach of the Knicks. But like, I guess the main thing that sort of sticks with me as far as like, Tibbs versus Atkinson, for example, and there seems to be like a very vocal contingent of like Knicks fans that are like, oh my God, you need Atkinson. He's the guy. And if you get Tibbs, it's going to be a huge disaster. And the reason that people seem to come to is like player development. And I don't necessarily know that Atkinson has developed so many more players than Thibodeau. Um, 
you know, you and I talked a little bit about this before the show and you were kind of like, well, I think, you know, Derek Rose was always going to be Derek Rose. And there's definitely a point to be made for that. Like Rose was the number one overall pick. He was viewed as, you know, a transcendent talent right from the second that he got into the league. Like, I mean, he was a, he was the clear number one pick. People always had high expectations for him. Um, so I guess there's something to be said for like, oh, you know, Tibbs didn't have to do that much to get Rose to be as good as he was. But ultimately, Rose became an MVP. And, you know, that's not something that just happens to anyone. Um, you know, that's that's something that you do have to work for and have the right system in place for. And, um, you know, and those teams were so successful, I think, in large part to due to what Tibbs did as far as coaching them. But then you look at other guys like, I mean, Jimmy Butler, who I mentioned already, came into the league as a late first round pick, was fairly unspectacular his first couple of years and developed into a like a true all-star player uh, who's a, you know, perennial all-star and, you know, perennial 20 something point per game score with great defense. Um, so I think there's something to be said for for his you know, development ability of Butler. He took Joakim Noah, who was a, a sort of a defensive specialist, you know, got taken in the lottery and, and taken in the top 10, but I think was largely viewed as like he was just going to be strictly a defensive player and turned him into almost an MVP caliber player at one point. Um, Taj Gibson, who the, the Knicks are sort of reaping the rewards of now, he, you know, took from a relative unknown to a really solid you know, defensive minded big man role player. So there's, there's like a lot um, that Tibbs has done, I think on the development front versus like Kenny Atkinson gets credit obviously for, you know, D'Angelo Russell and what he was able to do with him, which I still, I mean, if I'm being completely honest, I don't know that Russell is actually like that great of a player overall. Like I think he's a really good offensive player, but I, I do question his, uh, defensive ability and whether his offensive acumen outweighs his defensive deficiencies, particularly on the team that he's on now with Carl Anthony Towns. Um, but then, you know, there's, I guess, Jared Allen, you could say, right? Um, Joe Harris, who kind of came in as a, as a whatever player and is now hitting the free agency pool this year as a, you know, a, a legit like sharpshooter. Um, yeah, I don't know, Gavin. I mean, you were, you were working on the Nets pod for a while. So obviously you probably have more info on the individual players, but I think my overall, my overall thing is I'm just like, I don't know necessarily that, um, that there's like this huge chasm between the two that everybody seems to think I would probably, I mean, if I'm being honest, I think I actually do still prefer Atkinson by a little bit. But I don't think it's this, like, you know, enormous fall off a cliff drop off between the two. I think Tibbs actually does have something to offer. And I mean, his career winning percentage is great. He's consistently produced winners. And if he's able to walk the walk, he has already talked the talk. Like he was he appeared at I think it was Sloan this year and sat in on a panel and was even asked about the minutes management and stuff like that. And whether he takes that into account now and said that like, yes, I, you know, I've, I've kind of looked 
back on things and, you know, started looking at these things and, you know, figuring out how to coach more for like the current day rather than 10 years ago. And it sounds like he's got a pretty good grip on it. All right. Just a quick reminder that today's show is brought to you by Built Bar. Built Bars are so freaking yummy. I have been eating them nonstop for the last month. Uh, I've been trying my best, and I mean, everybody should be, to stay active during quarantine. Um, I know it can be difficult sometimes, but it's it's very important to keep your body, uh, you know, in good shape and, and, you know, not to get too comfortable on your couch, you know, even though you're there all the time. Uh so, you know, I've been I've been trying to go outside. I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a basketball hoop by me uh, that I can use that doesn't have people on it um, and a tennis court where my wife and I can play and have a bike so I can go bike riding, stuff like that. And whenever I get done, I always reach for a built bar. And sometimes I even eat one beforehand because I'm the type that likes to have a little something in my stomach before I start working out uh, just so my body has something to draw from as I'm, you know, working my muscles and everything. And uh, Bilt Bars have been great to me. Uh, they taste phenomenal, so I'm not, like, dreading the experience of eating my protein bar before or after my workout. I actually find myself excited to try a new flavor and see what's going on. Uh, for what it's worth, my one of my new favorites is my most recent uh, flavor that I tried, which is Toffee Almond, which I would very much recommend. Fantastic bite there. Uh, but all these Bilt Bars are are you know, made with 100% natural ingredients. You don't need a periodic table to figure out what is in your protein bar, which is great. They don't taste like a ton of fillers, you know, so it's not like those cliff bars where it's like you got that sort of like Rice crispy stuff in them or whatever that sort of leaves your mouth feeling dry. Certainly not like a, like power bars or those types where it tastes like you're eating a piece of sidewalk chalk covered in fake chocolate. Uh, these taste great. They're They're dense. It's like a like a chewy candy bar, like a like an extra dense nougat. If you get the ones with nuts in it, there's usually little pieces of nuts in it to chew on, which is good for a little textural element. And all of them are coated in 100% natural chocolate. Uh, some of my flavors, favorite flavors, like I said, toffee almond, fantastic. Uh, orange cream, for those of you that are nut-free, uh, is a fantastic flavor. And Built Bar has uh, a number, and I would say eight and eight of each, but it's actually expanding. Uh, as we speak, but they have a number of nut-free flavors and a number of flavors with nuts. And the nut-free ones are prepared in completely nut-free facilities for those of you with nut allergies. So definitely something to keep in mind. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're fantastic. And the best part about them is that you get anywhere from 15 to 20 grams of protein per bar, which is a, a really high amount for those of you that are into that sort of thing. Uh, and none of them are high calorie. Uh, they range anywhere from like 110 to 170 calories per bar, which by and large is really, really low for your complete daily intake, particularly with the amount of protein that you're getting. And they max out at like maybe three, four grams of sugar and only three to five grams of carbs. So really good for you and good for your post-workout uh, you know, recovery. So if you are interested in getting some Built Bars, go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKEDON and you will get $10 off your first order. Again, that's promo code LOCKEDON for $10 off at BuiltBar.com. You can get either a, a box with all one flavor or if you're like me and you just like to try everything, you can build your own custom box. It's a super great thing to be able to pick all your flavors that you want without being 
you know, shoehorned into a, a certain flavor combination uh, with some that you might not necessarily like to eat. So again, go to builtbar.com, use promo code locked on, and you will get $10 off your first order today. That's sort of where I was going to go with it. And that, that's where I think Atkinson, um, more so than player development, uh, to your point, um, has the advantage in my mind is that he embraces modern basketball to a, a degree that, I mean, uh, essentially every team are, are more as much or more so than every other team in the NBA outside of maybe the Rockets. Like analytically, his entire tenure on the Nets, um, the Nets were the best team in the NBA in terms of the shots they forced defensively in terms of preventing um, quality looks from three and quality looks at the rim. And that didn't always translate into great defense because the Nets ha- had a young team and, and mostly not great defenders. But in, in terms of coaching and actually um, trying to force w- or dictate where the other team is shooting the basketball and what types of shots they're getting, um, he, he was elite at that. He had the Nets consistently taking the second most threes in the NBA behind the Houston Rockets. Um, in, in terms of building a culture, and I guess, I mean, you, you could argue whether this is Sean Marks, whether this is Kenny Atkinson, whether it was just the Nets organization as a whole. I, I know Knicks fans hate it and, and hate to talk about it. And they say, all right, for all your culture, you guys have won uh, one playoff game in three seasons. And that's that's totally fair. But I, I think we can agree what they've had going in, in that aspect, aspect is, is significantly healthier than uh, what the Knicks have had basically in the last uh, 20 years back, back before uh, 1999-2000, which we're going to uh, talk about at the end of this podcast. But I, I think it, it's it's all of that stuff, even more so than the player development. And I, I guess to, to your last point on Tibbs, I mean, maybe that's something he's starting to embrace and something that um, on his third job as a head coach, he, he would really go all out for him and do something similar to Atkinson. But um, I all I would say to that is, is we know Kenny Atkinson is about that uh, 2020 basketball lifestyle. And Tibbs, even on the T-Wolves, still played sort of an antiquated style of offense. And that, that was with the quintessential modern big in Carl Anthony Towns leading the way. So I, I guess all I would say is um, I, I just I have my concerns that he's he's fully ready to embrace that direction. Um, if he is, probably um, would be a pretty solid coach. Like, again, like no doubt about his work ethic. No doubt that he's super intelligent. It's it just whether or not he's ready to sort of give up on, on the tenets that kind of defined his career. And to me, he just comes off as an extremely stubborn guy. And, and that's just in terms of a personality perspective, not what I want in a head coach. I want a head coach that I think this has always been Steve Kerr's greatest strength, that he's so both from like um, a, a managing personalities perspective and, and from a strategic perspective. So about flexibility and adjusting to his guys and, and sort of building around exactly what he has. And obviously that's easier when you have multiple Hall of Famers on your team. Um, but versus just saying, hey, this is how I think basketball works. This is how we're going to play. And, and my my big concern um, with Thibodeau in regards to this Knicks team specifically is that I, I think as we saw this year, you can very easily look at this current Knicks roster and say, okay, they're sort of built for like an early 2000s style where it's like R.J. Barrett just playing bully ball, Julius Randle playing bully ball, and that they played that way this year, and we said it again and again ad nauseum, Alex. It was so to their detriment, and I hope Leon Rose and I hope whoever the coach is instead looks forward and says, hey, we have some pieces here. 
We need to add a, a ton of shooting, and then we need to really emphasize that shooting to get the most out of Mitchell Robinson, to get the most out of R.J. Barrett, to get the most out of Frank Milikina. So, again, that's a summation of my issues. I see a world where Tom Thibodeau does work. I, I just think Kenny Atkinson, it, it, it's so clear how he could sort of pull the best out of all these guys. Let me tell you about the single most useful app on my phone. It is Blinkist. I, I have plenty of time to read, I, but I don't do it. I just I don't have the attention span anymore, and that's why I use an app that makes it a heck of a lot more efficient. Blinkist is so unique in that it works on your phone, your tablet, and your web browser. It takes the best key takeaways that need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Blink successful people like business leaders are well known for reading a lot of books. Blinkist is made for busy people like you who want to get the main points of a book quickly so you can start using that information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book during your commute, on your lunch break, or while you exercise. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive growing library from self-help, business health, to history books. Blinkist has the latest titles from best-selling lists, as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never quite had the time to um, I like to use Blinkist uh, while I'm taking my dog, Miko, who's a mini Australian Shepherd. He's very cute. You'll have to take my word for it since this is a podcast. Um, on long walks, we, we like to go to Central Park. Uh, Riverside is a little crowded right now, but we'll, we'll take him on a nice long walk to Central Park, and I can just listen to a great audiobook. I also, um, if, if you haven't done it, it's great to do on a weekday. It's not too crowded. You bike the loop in Central Park. And you, you can you can get the main points of some of the greatest books ever written, including the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm doing less than four hours. But once we get back to regular life, um, it's always good to have some tips on productivity and organization. It's, it's like you're compounding uh, the ethos of the Blinkist app. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash MBA. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash MBA, to start your free seven-day trial, and you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash MBA. I mean... I hear what you're saying, but ultimately, like, if you look at last year's, at last year's, uh, you know, numbers, for example, I, I think there's something to be said for, like, cool, it's fun to just hoist threes all day, but ultimately, where does it get you? Um, because there are plenty of teams. I mean, for example, if you want to look for, like, an example of where, uh, <laughs> To use like a Chappelle show reference where keeping it real goes wrong, you know, with, with shooting tons and tons of threes. Look no further than like the Atlanta Hawks last year who shot, I mean, the, the Nets shot 36 threes per game last year. The Hawks shot 37 threes per game. And, you know, it's like all like pace, 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 like run, 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 blah, blah, blah. And cool. That's great. But ultimately it got them nothing because they just didn't have the right personnel overall to make it work. And, you know, that's partly, I guess, on the Hawks front office and all that but it's also partly just you can't just build an offense that strictly is like let's just shoot three-pointers like even the the golden state warriors for all that they've built based off their ability to shoot threes it's only successful because they use their personnel properly and they are able to shoot threes like efficiently you know they don't just hoist them just to hoist them they 
you know, they shoot them with the intent to hit them. Um, where I think that sometimes, you know, like certainly the Hawks fell into that. And sometimes even the Nets to a degree fell into just like, we're just going to shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot because that's our identity. And that's the only thing that we have. And it's like, okay, but you need to have other aspects to your offense because when the shooting doesn't work, particularly in the playoffs, when things clamp down, you need to be able to bust something else out, you know, and potentially have some sets that end in a mid range shot, but one that works, you know, um, or just like anything else uh, it, other than just shooting threes constantly. Um, the other thing that's slightly concerning to me is last year, the nets. And I mean, granted, you know, can't really throw stones in glass houses. The Knicks were last in the league last year in assists per game at 20.1, but the Nets were not too far ahead of them uh, at 21st in the league overall, 23.8 assists per game, which that's something that I would want to see go up as well. Um, I want to I want to pull numbers on Thibodeau as well and see where he was, maybe like in his one of his better years with um, with Chicago and see you know, where their numbers were at, um, or maybe even with his good year with Minnesota, just to see a more contemporary example. But, you know, I, I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that D'Angelo Russell was sort of the engine of their offense. So a lot of times it would end in him taking a shot, um, which obviously doesn't, it, when you have your point guard as you know your primary scorer and playmaker, it, it sort of um, limits the amount of assists to some degree. But I, I would like, you know, I definitely, I don't want to see any, like, if I can avoid it, I don't want any more for the Knicks to be a ISO heavy team if we can avoid it. So I, that's a little worrisome to me as well. But yeah, I, again, I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate. Like, I actually do think Atkinson is a good potential hire, and I'd be very happy if the Knicks did hire him. And I think that if nothing else, I don't know that he's going to be the coach that necessarily, like, takes the Knicks to a championship. But I think that he could be the coach that helps get R.J. Barrett on the right path, you know, helps get Frank Nellikina on the right path, helps whoever they draft this year. If they can, you know, somehow uh, take advantage of these rumors that LaMelo Ball wants to force his way to the Knicks, you know, if they can do that and get him, I think, you know, Atkinson could be a really good coach for him. Um, but I, I do think that there are some I, I do think that he gets deified a bit much for a guy whose crowning achievement was taking a team to 42 and 40 for the year. Um, and that's literally his, his career high for wins in a season. And it was, it, it always seemed kind of fluky in a way anyway, because it just, it, it seemed like they won so many tight games and whatever, but a, a lot of that goes to coaching too. But anyway, Gavin, I'll, I'll seed the floor now because I've rambled enough, I think. Yeah, I, I guess just two quick points pushing back on those. As far as the shooting threes thing, I mean, all, all I would say is, I mean, I think those teams were about as successful as they would have been. Like Atlanta wasn't going to be good this year with, with John Collins or playing any kind of style. Um, and, and as for the Nets, I mean, I think, again, they were both offensively and defensively. They, they sort of maxed out. Like the year they made the playoffs, they people they had a bunch of injuries. Like Karis LeVert, remember, like literally like his right foot essentially fell off and he he was somehow somehow able to come back for the playoffs, but he he missed most of that season with a pretty shorthanded roster. I mean, D'Lo was hurt on and off. Dinwiddie was hurt on and off. They they were still able to to make the postseason, and I think that was sort of a credit to the style that they played. Granted, I'm I'm with you. I mean, I think at a certain point there is a diminishing return on shooting a ton of ton of threes. 
But my, my point is just embracing analytics and, and, and embracing what, what works in the modern NBA. And, I mean, there's a reason the Rockets have done it year after year after year. The, the more threes you shoot, there generally is a correlation between that and good, good offense. It's not going to make a bad team good. It's not going to uh, make a good team great. But it does. It, it generally puts your team in the best position to win, and uh, I think I, I'm I'm saying that in, in conjunction with the idea that Leon Rose will build a team that's capable of that and add a lot of shooting. Because as I think we're we're in consensus on this, that that's the thing the Knicks far and away the most need. I, I've I've a stat later relative to the 99-2000 team that kind of points out just the the mystifying nature of how the Knicks shot threes. This uh, this past year. And then uh, the only other thing I'd say in, in terms of um, assists is I, I pulled it up and uh, in, in 17, 18, when the Knicks actually were oh, sorry, not the Knicks, the Nets were, were playing. Dinwiddie is their primary point guard is not not a total pass first guy, but also a guy who doesn't just totally, totally sit on the basketball. Um, they, they were ninth in the league in assists versus when they had D'Lo, they were 21st. And last year with Kyrie, you mentioned they were near the uh, bottom of the league. And and I would just say visually, as I mean, someone who watched like I don't like a hundred, probably around a hundred Nets games, like the the two previous years before this one, um, they they really move the ball. Like Kenny Atkinson teams like really really do a great job making the extra pass, playing unselfishly. And, and again, that's not that doesn't always lead to assists because sometimes it's like sort of a hockey assist scenario where you make an extra pass and the guy's a wide open lane to the basket and just drives to the rim and scores. But he, he definitely placed an emphasis on ball movement. That's not a concern for me at all. Um, with, with Kenny, the whole thing with him is like I, I thought he was like generally like a pretty bad game manager. Like a lot of times he made mystifying subs. And and um, that one season they were really good at the end of games. The year after they were terrible at end of game situations. And a lot of times I thought it was because he, he sort of bungled it. So there are certainly flaws. And that's the reason. I mean, I said sort of like you, Alex, like I don't think he's anything close to a home run higher. But um, I, again, for overall philosophical reasons, he's sort of the guy for me. And I think the perfect coach to take the Knicks from bad to competent. And then maybe you bring in someone else when it's time to go and try and win a championship. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess there's just I think there is a case to be made that if Tom Thibodeau has been paying attention and, you know, can implement some new things that he could be potentially the guy to take you to both of those places, um, which he sort of did with the Bulls once upon a time. Um, but I think we should probably just also briefly mention Mike Miller and yeah. how we feel about him. I mean, I think I actually think for all the hubbub about bringing in a new coach and everything else, I think there is kind of a case to be made because of the situation that we're in where maybe keeping Mike Miller for another year wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Um, it would have to be sort of the coaching equivalent of a prove it deal, but with a, with a clear directive from the front office, like it seemed like this year, the directive was win, 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 win. Like you have to win games or else all of our asses are on the line. Um, whereas now you have a new front office who clearly, you know, James Dolan, I think feels really good about Leon Rose because he's from CAA, which is, you know, James Dolan's agency of choice. Um, and, you know, I, obviously he made the hire with the intent of keeping him for at least a few years uh, until things go belly up again, potentially, if, if uh, <laughs> past Knicks history is anything. But, you know, as, as long as Leon Rose could make it clear to Mike Miller, like, look, we're not, you know, wins and losses don't really matter this year. Um, do your best with, you know, the players that you have, but also 
you know, focus on playing the younger guys so that we can really see what we have in them. Assuming that they don't lock Frank Nilakina up to an extension before the season starts, um, which I would hope that they would, but you know, if they don't, then which seems probably more likely than not, then they're, he's going to hit restricted free agency next year. Um, you'll have Mitchell Robinson eligible for an extension next summer. I actually was, I've, I, I was informed, you know, and then looked up the rules on it just to be sure that you know Mitch. The thing that makes the most sense with him is to give him an extension next summer, um, because if he plays out the fourth year of his deal and doesn't have an extension, he becomes an unrestricted free agent after his fourth year due to the CBA rules about second round picks. Um, unlike a a uh, first round pick where they become a restricted free agent after their first after their fourth year of their rookie deal, uh, second round players after three years can become a restricted free agent and then any time thereafter become an unrestricted free agent, even if it was their first deal that they signed. So you know, you've got some big decisions coming up for the Knicks in the next year or so, all related to their young players and how much they're going to have to be paying them and all that stuff. And, you know, I think I think as long as Mike Miller would be given sort of free reign to run things how he wants to, which I don't necessarily know that he was under Mills and Perry, because I think that the directive, again, from them was like win as many games as possible. And probably in Miller's own mind, he was thinking like, I'm an interim. I need to make a name for myself by winning some games. And like to his credit, he did. He was like, I mean, he was on, uh, we've run the numbers at however many times. He was on like a 32 33 win pace, which would have represented a 17 18 win improvement for the Knicks this year, which would have been honestly huge. Um, so, and would have given them sort of that like, if we're talking about Kenny Atkinson in Brooklyn, you know, getting the 33 wins this year over the course of a whole season would have given the Knicks sort of that same energy that Brooklyn was getting from, I think, the general public about like, oh, this this team is sort of on the upswing. Like, look at what they just did by adding a few veterans and one new rookie. They improved by 18 wins. Um, so I, I think there's there's definitely a case like that Mike Miller could be potentially like the guy um but maybe just for a year or so and give him sort of a tryout but I, I think certainly from the defensive end he he had the most competent looking Knicks defense I've seen in years um I think he needs some work on offense so if you keep him on as your head coach you know you might want to hire a little more uh like maybe maybe give him the option to bring on his own guys first off because he was kind of shoehorned into Fisdale's staff as, like, the de facto, like, replacement for him, I think. But, like, you know, definitely make sure to get him someone that's a little more of an offensive mind as an assistant coach. But defensively, he had the team playing great. And overall, I think he had the team playing pretty great. Yeah. Um. I mean, I, I really liked the guy. He was he was really, really good for the most part. My, I, I guess my... Not necessarily my sticking point, but I, I was, I, I didn't love the lineups he played. I know we, we both agreed on that. And I mean, to your point, clearly he was just trying to win as many games and said, like, look, like, I'm, I'm all for development, but the only way I'm keeping this job is if I, is if I have a significantly better record than David Fisdale did, which to your point, to his credit, he did. 
But I guess my, my lingering concern there would be, does he really think someone like Julius Randle and Alfred Payton, does he think those guys are winning players? Did he just legitimately think those were the best options that he had? And I think there's there's a debate to be had whether the Knicks like actually would have been better and been in more games if they sort of embraced the youth movement a little bit more. Like, I mean, I, I kind of think Frank Nilakino was just flat out more of a winning player than Alfred Payton was. I think they maybe would have done better putting more shooting on the floor instead of Julius Randle. And I mean, the issue was there. They didn't really have another great option. Like there wasn't just one guy on the bench. But maybe going small ball, they would have won a few more games. I don't know. I mean, I, I would guess that Miller had a pretty good gauge of that. And with a better roster, he would do more. Um, I wouldn't mind at all for him to have a, a chance with a new team. Like like if he's the coach going into next year and the Knicks build their team the right way, they add a lot of youth, they add a lot of shooting, um, they get rid of Peyton, hopefully find some way to get rid of Randall. Um, I would, I'd be excited to watch them under Miller next year and, and interested to see what he would do because I think he, he was he was a good coach for the most part and a lot of the same things I think about Kenny Atkinson um, I, I think about Mike Miller like I think there's there's quite a bit of overlap there and, and I know you you and I have both made this point I wouldn't mind if one was the assistant for the other like I, I wouldn't really care who was the head coach who who was the lead assistant out of those two I wonder if Kenny Atkinson would take that because um, presumably there'd be another job around the league for him though I actually think it's going to be a relatively slow coaching cycle like it doesn't seem like too many guys are, are on the way out. Um, and if there isn't another job for him and, and he just wants to stay in the New York area, I know uh, when he was fired, Zach Lowe made the point that his family is really, really comfortable in New York and, and it, it would be their preference to stay in New York. So I wonder if that would lead to Atkinson returning to his old job as an assistant coach on, on the Knicks this time under Miller. Like whatever configuration of those two you want, I, I would be pretty content with. Yeah, I, I'd be with that, too. I think they could complement each other pretty well. Um because, you know, to your point, like Atkinson seems to understand NBA offense pretty well at this point. And Miller seems to really understand how to run a good NBA defense at this point. So rather than <laughs> rather than Fizdale's whatever it was that he was running, that like weird blitz defense that worked against one team and then decided to use it against every team. Um, but like, yeah, I I could see. I could see potentially that pairing working really well. I could see just Miller in general working pretty well uh, if he came back. I To your point about whether he thought that Randall and Peyton were legitimately good or whatever, I, I think that we started seeing towards the end of the year, and we would have seen it more had the Knicks been able to play out their schedule, that he was starting to stray from them more and more as his tenure went on, like there were times towards the end of the season where he wasn't afraid to like sit Julius Randall down the stretch of a game. Like he did that a couple times and had Portis in there instead when Portis was Portis clearly, I mean, for all his flaws was a better fit with Mitch and was working better with particularly like Mitch and Frank units, um, Mitch, Frank and, and Portis were playing great together towards the end of the year. And then he also, you know, went with Frank down the stretch of some games when Frank was playing well also. So, uh, you know, I think we're starting to see, and it uncoincidentally sort of started happening after Mills got ousted. You know, you started to see, I think, a little bit more of a more youth-centric approach. And also that, to your point, led to more wins, I think, because, the you know, I think Frank Nelikina ultimately gives you more of a chance to win a game than Alfred Payton, even if he doesn't 
put up the same stats or even if he doesn't have the same finishing ability inside, you know, the, the aggregate of what Frank gives you is better than what Alfred gives you. And the aggregate in some cases of what Bobby Portis gives you is better than what Julius Randle gives you because Portis is more willing to just kind of play a spot up role um, with the occasional mini post up or whatever. Um, and, you know, it isn't going to constantly clog where Mitch needs to operate. So, yeah, I, I'd be cool with, Honestly, at this point, I'm to the point where I'm kind of, I can sort of talk myself into any of these top three candidates. Um, the only way that the Knicks are really going to aggravate me at this point is if I hear like Mark Jackson's name come up, who I think is just, I mean, if anyone follows me on Twitter and follows along with that, I'm like maybe the most anti-Mark Jackson person on the planet because I just think that his his like personal baggage that he brings with him is so much is like not worth at all whatever he could bring you as a coach and I don't even think he's that great of a coach considering like the the like 16 game swing or whatever it was that the Warriors took the next year after he left and like cakewalked to a championship with basically the same roster as what Jackson had the year before um if Jeff Van Gundy comes up I mean that's fine I really I just don't think that Jeff Van Gundy legitimately wants to coach an NBA team anymore. I think he's pretty happy with being a, a color analyst for ESPN and just wants to stick with that job unless someone would give him like $50 million a year or something that he just like absolutely couldn't turn down. But I, I don't necessarily know. Like if they would bring him on, I'd be fine with it. Um, those are about the only other names that I've seen. Oh, when I was reading the Begley article, randomly he mentioned Mike Woodson also. And I was like, uh... <laughs> I kind of have been there, done that with Woodson. And the reality with Woodson was that he guided the Knicks to their best season in the last 20 years, but he also sort of stumbled into that. And then when he got like the full roster or whatever, he immediately bungled it again and started trying to play too many bigs and all that stuff. So no thanks to a second tour with Woody. I don't know how if you have any other candidates that are on your mind, Gavin, other than the top three. No, I'm just. I realize I have no idea what Mike Woodson's been up to. Has he been an assist? Oh, he, he was an assistant for Doc Rivers and cool. with the Clippers for I think the last like four years. Okay, wow, good, good gig. I would, I would stick there if I, if I were him. Uh, no, I mean, I think, I think you pretty much covered it. Like, there's not. I wouldn't mind. Like, I'm, I, I would hope Leon Rose would be really thorough and sort of go from team to team and and talk to front offices and and try to find to like the next great assistant is like you know you know there's someone out there who's eventually going to be a hall of fame coach um that's easier said than done uh so i don't i don't mind with him prioritizing the three people he's prioritizing but i i just just with everything i, I hope he does his due diligence and if the front office hires were any indication of the fact that they were so patient with those it seems like that's rose's mindset um too granted that doesn't mean they're going to hire the right people but um with the knicks it's just been such a long time since process itself was good. I consider that a win in and of itself. So I, I would love for Rose to just sort of um, extend this as, as long as he feels like he needs to. There's all the time in the world to make these hires. Like the Knicks are not going to be playing meaningful basketball for probably still like another seven, eight months. So uh, yeah, that's that's kind of my uh, my two cents on it. Uh, Alex, uh, we, we spent a lot of time on the modern day. Should we uh, jump back? 20 years to a point when the Knicks outlook was a little sunnier. Sure. Yeah, we are headed back to the year 2000. So 
The year is 2000. The top three songs of the year were Breathe by Faith Hill. And then Santana, man, owned this year. Two, Smooth. Wow. Smooth uh, by Santana featuring Rob Thomas, number two overall song of the year. And then Maria Maria by Santana featuring the product G&B. I don't know what that person is. Uh, is the number three song of the year. Crazy stuff. I remember both those songs. Those, those did kind of slap like they were they were good songs uh top movies of the year you had mission impossible 2 grosses uh 546 million to take the top spot gladiator takes 457 and a half million to take the number two spot and castaway takes in 430 million to take the third spot Pretty solid year for movies, I think. And this was, I think, one or two years after Titanic also. So definitely sort of a, a golden age for for movies there, in a way. Um, in, the, in the news, the U.S. election ends in a really hotly contested recount of Florida, where George W. Bush pulls out a narrow victory over Al Gore. Uh, we're going to have another presidential election this year, and... I could see it potentially being very close as well. So we'll see if maybe history repeats itself 20 hopefully, years later. Hopefully not. Hopefully not, but you never know. Uh, <laughs> hopefully it's just closer than 2016. That's all I can ask for. Um, mad cow disease becomes a thing. So another parallel <laughs> to, yep. to 2020. <laughs> if not quite. If not quite as uh, crazy, mad cow disease, ultimately all you have to do is stop eating beef. Uh, we don't have that luxury right now. We can't stop breathing. So that's that's unfortunate. Uh, AOL buys Time Warner. I just thought that was hilarious. Just AOL doing anything, <laughs> considering AOL doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Dude, wait, can I just quick, quick tangent? I, I wrote about sports for AOL while in college. And whenever I told anyone, they were like, what? That still exists? And I was like, yep, <laughs> it does. Yeah. Yeah, well, and some people, I think, still have AOL email addresses. Yeah, uh, Bill Simmons, they, famously. Yeah, I think they're still active. I think they kept the servers open or whatever for the email addresses. I think, technically speaking, America Online still exists. It just it exists in the shadows now or something. Like, I don't know what they do, but I think they technically still exist. They They uh, run operations out of the sewers of New York. Yeah, I just want to know, like, how it all went so wrong for them. Literally, AOL used to be, like, the only way to get on the Internet. Yeah. and But I guess it's, like, it used to be your it, – because it, it used to be different. Like, it used to be your Internet was just run through your phone line. So, essentially, you would hook your phone line up to your computer, and then AOL was, like, your gateway to be able to use your phone service you were already paying for to get on the Internet. I guess. But then I guess once Internet moved on and turned into its own thing, where now it's run over cable and over satellite and all that stuff, then maybe that's what ultimately killed AOL as like once all these companies took things into their own hands rather than needing this like weird gateway service to do it. But I don't know. This might be worth some research. I'm I'm just curious now. I'm like piquing my own curiosity. Uh Anyway, in other news, the human genome was deciphered, which uh, that's that's pretty big news, I think. It's a big win. It's a big yeah. win. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty big. Uh, also, I mean, obviously, 2000, there was the whole Y2K thing, um, which ultimately was nothing, where everybody thought that all the computers in the world, for whatever reason, once it, because they didn't think computers and everything would be able to handle 
the date switching over to 2000 instead of, you know, having a 19 in it. So everybody got freaked out and thought the computers were going to revolt on us and we were going to have a Skynet Terminator situation or like all the everything was just going to bug out and and like all the nukes were going to fire off and hit all across the world. So there was a pretty large contingent of people, probably like the original the original 4chan types uh, that were, you know, in their little online chat groups, uh, (laughs) planning their doomsday scenarios and stuff. And lots of people made like doomsday shelters. Yeah. All those stories today about like looking back 20 years later on what people did are are amazing. Like I, those are some of my favorite things to read on the internet. There was a really good, um, it was just like a six episode miniseries. It was like a Y2K podcast with, if I remember correctly, I listened, it was like two, three years ago, but they had just all these anecdotes about just crazy shit people did in in the lead up to uh, Y2K and how it affected. But it wasn't again, it wasn't just like fringe nuts. Like it was like the U.S. government like flipping out and, and really just going to crazy, crazy lengths to prevent this problem that uh, didn't end up being anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just it's nuts. It's crazy to think about. I can remember back in the, I mean, because I was like 10 years old at the time. So this is yeah. like this is like still rememberable enough for me where I'm like. I remember all the all the fuss. My parents luckily were level headed about it and weren't like convinced that the world was going to end. Um, but I can remember some people like like kids in school being like, Oh yeah, my parents did this, that, and the other and I was like, What? <laughs> Even as a ten year old. I'm gonna talk about this on a podcast in twenty years. Yeah, exactly. Um and then I guess in our final uh, very important uh bit of news, uh Kathy Lee Gifford leaves Regis Philbin. On their morning show, and mm. that eventually becomes live with Regis and Kelly, which then eventually becomes live with Kelly and Michael, and then I, I don't know, I don't know who's on that show now. Is it just Kelly Ripa now? I I don't know. I haven't kept up, but I because Michael Strahan I, left. I know. To yeah, do some stuff. I think they got someone new, but I don't. I don't. Really, I think. Oh, Ryan Seacrest is involved. Is it? Isn't he? Oh, is it? Is it Kelly and Ryan Seacrest now? I, that sounds right. I don't know. We can. Okay. We can do more research at a later date and then never talk about it again. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, that's a pretty iconic show though. And ultimately I think I think if I remember it, Kathy Lee Gifford was like thought that she got bigger than the show or something and then amounted to nothing afterwards. <laughs> and Regis and uh Kelly Ripa just plugged right along. And I thought the show was better with Kelly Ripa anyway. My mom used to watch that show like religiously every single morning. So over like summer break, that would be like all that would be on the T V in the morning. And I, I thought Kelly Ripa did a good job. Anyway, uh, so the Knicks in 1999 to 2000, obviously coming hot off the heels of their finals appearance. Uh, expectations were high, you know, for them to do well. And they did manage to do pretty well. Uh, they finished 50 and 32. They were the three seed that year. And they beat the six seed Raptors in the first round, then the two seed Heat. In the second round, and then lost to the one seed Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals in six games, which, I mean, not great, but certainly not uh, something that uh, was like an upset by any means. Like the the Pacers were legitimately really good, and the Knicks had beat them the year before as the underdog. Um, but like the Pacers were a really really good team back then. So and a very deep team, very similar to the Knicks in that they didn't really have necessarily that like one megastar that like Jordan type. Um, but they just had a really deep team that could beat you, you know, a lot of different ways with a lot of really good players. And ultimately the Pacers flipped the script on the Knicks and beat them that next year. 
but it was a it was a pretty balanced team. I mean, there wasn't too many differences from the um, from the '99 Finals Run team. Uh, the team was mostly led by Sprewell, Houston, uh, Larry Johnson, Marcus Camby, Charlie Ward, Patrick Ewing. Uh, ultimately, this was his final year with the Knicks, and he put up. I mean, an okay season still. Uh, I think he averaged like 15 points, nine rebounds off the top of my head. I know it was 15 points uh, on okay shooting, but, you know, clearly it was kind of on his last legs, uh, but still had something to offer. And ultimately the Knicks would trade him in that offseason in one of the biggest nothing trades in NBA history for all parties involved. Um, the Knicks traded Patrick Ewing, Chris Dudley, and... Uh, a 2001 first round pick, I think all to Seattle and in return got Travis Knight, Glenn Rice and a different 2001 first round pick. Ultimately, I, I didn't even look into it because I don't care to see how the Knicks flubbed this one, but ended up being Jamal Tinsley, who played his whole career with the Pacers. So the Pacers wound up in possession of that pick somehow from the Knicks. Uh, but Glenn Rice didn't really amount to anything with the Knicks. Travis Knight. I think only played that one season, then was gone. Um, but also Ewing didn't really do anything for the Sonics, didn't move the needle for them in any tangible way, and then ultimately ended ended up on the Magic uh, after that too, and didn't do much there either, and just kind of uh, stumbled into the sunset uh, to end his career. And the Knicks didn't really get anything from trading away the best player that they had had in the last like 30 years. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was all in all, I think Gavin, in looking back on this season, I think it was probably their, for the whole season, their best year of this core that they had of the Sprewell Houston Camby era. Um, yeah. you know, the, the 99 season gets more love because they made the finals, but ultimately that team in the regular season was kind of a disaster as we went over with like Mark Berman, when we did that pod a few weeks ago, um, you know, that team had that 98, 99 team had high expectations that it didn't meet uh, until late in the season when they finally kind of put it all together and everybody got healthy and everything. Whereas this team, I would say like reasonably like a 50 win season and a three seed in the Eastern conference finals appearance is about as much as you could ask out of any team. Um, and so the, this one, I would say, you know, this year they actually met expectations and did about what they were figured to do, um, which is, again, pretty low bar to set for some teams. Like we were talking about the Spurs it would be like, oh, that was an average, average year out of the last 20 that they won 50 games and, you know, made a, a you know, conference finals trip. But for the Knicks, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was, and you hear this so often from teams, the the confidence you get for making a finals run and knowing that okay, that's that's our ceiling. Um, we we can't really accept anything less, and they they nearly fought their way back there. I mean, I'm watching. Um, I mean, before the show, and then again as we speak, highlights of their, their game seven against the Heat that year. They're they're just a, a fun, multifaceted team who could attack you and. In a lot of different ways, and it was just, it was kind of cool to see. Like obviously, I mean, uh, Ewing was was on the way out, but um, it, it was fun to see how they still sort of maintained the identity of of all those '90s teams. And I guess technically they, they started the year in the '90s, so that makes sense. But um, in, into the into the new millennia, like it wasn't 
like a significantly evolved form of basketball outside of the fact that they consistently had shooting on the floor between Sprewell and uh, Allen Houston. And but they, they'd still throw out lineups occasionally watching it with um, like all big guys, like either like LJ and Ewing or, or occasionally Camby and Ewing together and, and would just like bombard the offensive boards, which obviously isn't really in, in vogue <laughs> at this point in, um, in, in basketball. But we would just be throwing bodies around and Sprewell as a three, Houston as a two, just a lot of size, but unselfish, like not necessarily a lot of great passers, but guys who would bully their way inside and, and were willing to kick it out for threes. And it was interesting because you, you sort of saw the same thing from those mid 90s Rockets teams where they didn't necessarily take a lot of threes, but did kind of embrace modern basketball in that they played inside out. And then would get really, really good looks from behind the arc and had guys who could hit. And I think that was really crucial because um, I, I guess the three in some ways was still a really significant weapon because when everyone was shooting less, each one felt like like almost like a nuclear bomb going off in a game. Like it really could change the course of momentum. And I, I thought this Knicks team and the year before, that was part of the reason they won. They were sort of really well built to to dominate inside, play bully ball, be absolutely ferocious defensively. And then, and then kick it out to shooters to high quality shots. And and I guess I'm I'm taking that tact with looking at this team. Is that I want to I want to focus quickly on their best shooter, Alex Allen Houston, who who was just amazing that year. I mean, w- one of his two or three best seasons of his career, particularly on the Knicks. Twenty points, three rebounds, three assists per game, forty eight percent from the field, forty four percent from three, which is just a ridiculous mark. Obviously, even by today's standards, would be one of the the leading um, shooters in terms of efficiency from three in the NBA and an 84% free throw shooter. What was insane to me was that he only took three threes per game, which was less than the 3.6 that Julius Randle, who shot 28% from behind the arc this year, uh, took this past season. So I just thought that was crazy. And and, and my, my big takeaway was I was just kind of thinking, what would Allen Houston be like? in the modern NBA. And I really think he'd be taking maybe not James Harden, who takes like 12 or 13 a game, but I think he'd be taking 10 threes a game, hitting just over four of them. And and you you look at that with how solid he was from two. And the fact that early in his career, and this is what sort of stood out to me watching highlights, because my first year watching the Knicks was was sort of his last season. At that point, he he was, it was only a couple years later, but he was, he was pretty diminished as an athlete. He was still pretty quick, like really, really good um, off the ball and like was never like a monster athlete, but was sort of like Ray Allen ish in it may, maybe a notch below that, but in, in that he could win off the dribble and leverage his shooting in, in, into drives. But he, he was a guy who I think in a modern NBA offense shooting an appropriate number of threes, I think in his prime, he would have been averaging like 26 points per game and, and maybe went down as a, a little bit more highly regarded than he was because the guy was just an elite, elite shooter who, uh, because of when he played, couldn't necessarily maximize his potential. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think he could have been, you know, Clay Thompson minus a little bit of the the um, defensive acumen, but plus, you know, the ability to actually break down the defense on his own. Um, but, like, just the pure shooting numbers were insane with him. And, yeah, like, to your point, it's just it's nuts to look back on some of these guys that had these fantastic three-point percentages that ultimately just didn't take advantage of it and it makes you wonder like how it took so long for the league to figure out that a three-pointer is worth more than a two-pointer and is maybe more worth shooting you know like the whole the whole like maury ball you know d'antoni ball whatever 
whatever you want to call it, whoever, you know, figured this whole thing out that shooting more threes is a good thing. Um, the Mike Woodson ball, actually. I mean, because the Knicks sort of started this trend back in 12, 13. But, like, it, it's crazy looking back at players like Allen Houston and then trying to project them into the modern game. And you, you also consider, too, that maybe Houston would have been less injured overall in today's game as well with, you know, less, uh, no hand-checking rules, no... I mean, you could get away with murder back in, like, the 90s with fouling guys and stuff you know how many of his injuries could have been avoided um how much would load management have helped alan houston you know of, of trying to give him scheduled days off now and again and maybe trying to keep his minute count more like 35 a game or something like that um to try to you know extend the life on his on his lower body and it's fascinating to think and you know i think that he's one of those guys that definitely stands out of if you could transplant him into today's NBA with everything that we know about the game today, I think he would be, I mean, he was a great player then. I think he would be an even better player today, potentially if, if he was in today's game. Yeah. Uh, no, no argument. I mean, he, I, I would, I just wish you could sort of plug him in on, on, on the modern Knicks. And I know he's still part of the organization. So maybe, maybe he'll be willing to make a comeback next year, but he, he would be just, Picture perfect if you're looking at like a core three of uh, Frank, RJ, and Mitch. Like you just slot him in at the two guard, and you, you could just sort of set it and forget it for the next like 15 years. I mean, I will say like you know he's he's pretty actively around the Knicks still. Um, it, most of what he does is with the Westchester Knicks now, as far as his uh involvement with the team. But he does travel with the team sometimes, and like I saw him one game I was covering for SI. It was I think it was the one in Philly. I saw him and I was like, you know, he's still he still looks like he keeps himself in pretty good shape. Like, I think he could he could potentially suit it up still today. Uh, so, yeah, maybe we'll get him a workout this summer, see how he looks and maybe sign him to a, uh, a veteran's minimum. He could do the the Jordan with the with the Wizards treatment, you know, mm-hmm. come back to the Knicks and give us, you know, one or two more years. Maybe uh, instead of donating to 9-11 relief, he'll donate a salary to COVID relief or something. It'll it'll be a great story. I think it'll work. I'm with it. I'm I'm with it. All right, uh, Alex, you, anything else to, to finish up or we want to wrap this up? No, I think we're good. I mean, I, I think I do just want to note, like, I think that it's kind of funny that this team doesn't get that much recognition overall the 99 2000 squad despite being again like the one that actually met expectations more and like i wasn't really i mean literally the the 98 99 was the first team that sort of got me into the knicks so i wasn't like and you know being i I honestly was raised in not really a basketball household like nobody in my family really watched basketball except for me so like as a 10 year old you know nine ten year old i didn't have uh free reign over the tv to be like hey i want to watch the knicks tonight so like i didn't get to really experience this regular season but i can only imagine that this regular season was probably a lot more fun than the 98 99 one uh even if you didn't get all those same iconic moments in the finals run in the postseason and you still got a pretty good postseason out of them um i wonder if maybe this one is just viewed through a different lens because it instead of feeling like a pleasant surprise, like the finals run was, this one probably felt more like a disappointment to not make it back to the finals. Um, And then I think also the reason this year generally doesn't get that much recognition is because 
ultimately more so than anything else, 2000 was the year that they traded Patrick Ewing. Um, and that was sort of, I think that's been widely sort of viewed as like the curse starter for the Knicks. Like it's their own version of like the curse of the Bambino for the Red Sox. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I think that's why this year doesn't get that much appreciation, but like in hindsight, if you just look at it from strictly like a basketball lens, I think this was actually a pretty fun season and one that probably deserves a little more recognition from Knicks fans where, where this, this core that had surprisingly gone to the finals the year before sort of finally gelled and turned into an even better team the next year uh, that just couldn't quite get over the hump against Indiana, who was a fantastic team in their own right. Yeah. I mean, I I understand why we do it because it was a lot more recent and I I think objectively probably a slightly more fun team, but we, we fetishize 12, 13 and, and never talk about this team that was, was better. And again, 12 years earlier for a lot of people who listen to our podcast, a lot of people who, Follow on social media, probably not old enough to have watched that team. Me, me, absolutely included in that. Um, but it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little weird that we, we never ever talk about it because really good team. Alex, honestly, I, I, I did not know that they made the conference finals until I was, uh, was reading your notes. I was like, oh, wow, I, they were that good, huh? And then I, I went in and did a little more research. I was like, yep, that was, uh, that was a really good team. Anyways, uh, great note to end this episode on. We're, we have one more year in our uh, time capsule look back. We're going into 2009, 2010. I know in the podcast we did with Seth, we, we sort of touched on some of those guys. We go a little bit more in depth. I, I watched a ridiculous amount of uh, Daniel Gallinari highlights this morning in anticipation. So I'm excited to talk about my love for him and why he was, even though he only spent a couple years on the team, uh, one of my favorite Knicks ever. Until then, uh, be good and uh, enjoy the rest of your week and your weekend. The weather promises to be nice as long as you're social distancing and wearing a mask and outside and enjoy it. Be good and we'll talk to you soon.